Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Wednesday, which means the bairn's been shipped off to nursery. It means the pot of Yorkshire is on the go. It's been drunk. We're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and to the football of its time. This is the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast on What If Football. I am Jake Doyle. This is episode 43, where we are going to discuss the best international tournament shocks of all time, particularly in the 2000s, of course. And we're going to take a look how well England did in Euro 2000. Spoiler, it wasn't that great. We are returning to England for the table never lies and the 2006-07 Premier League season where a resurgent Manchester United were the victors there. Follow, subscribe, give us a lovely five-star review, help us boost those audio algorithms there on pod- on uh, Spotify, Apple or Acast. We are on the podcast feed every Wednesday. If you listen to our seasoning reviews of the Premier League on Monday and the European Leagues on Tuesday, thank you very much. If you haven't, I'll give you a wee minute or so to go and check them out now thank you enjoy today's show so let's start with some of your favorite ever international tournament shocks starting off with jake collinson the best shock is senegal versus france 2002 and likewise george hs 2706 and jonathan r also say senegal versus france jonathan r saying senegal versus france made me smile in spite of most of the 2002 World Cup, which I despise on the right foot here. So I agree in terms of what both teams would do at the tournament and in terms of their historical precedent, France were the reigning world champions, the reigning European champions. Senegal, in the grand scheme of things, had been nothing up until the AFCON earlier that year. They'd, uh, they'd go to the final, they'd be beaten by Cameroon on penalties. And Cameroon in this tournament... They were expected to do huge things, but they went out of the groups because of Ireland, because of Germany. Maybe it was those sleeves that FIFA demanded that they wear, because of course in the AFCON that year, 
they wear sleeveless shirts and they they made them wear sleeves for seemingly arbitrary reasons. Senegal, however, they beat the big opposition in their group. Booba Dop. Booba Jop is there, Booba Jop is there, as John Motson exclaimed on BBC. The Friday lunchtime game, I think it was May the 31st, 2002. I remember celebrating it in the schoolyard after trying to recreate that goal um, with some unlucky people who'd enlist as Frenchmen who was, played the uh, role of Fabian Bartes floundering on the liners. Jop uh, scored the goal and Senegal went through, winning winning 1-0 they would then, of course. Play out an entertaining draw with Uruguay, in which they should have probably won, they were 3-0 up and uh, did well to secure a draw against a very, very good Denmark team. They would put out Sweden in the last 16. Uh, the golden goal there, Henri Kamara, he scored it. He scored the first goal as well in a 2-1 win. And then on paper, if you think about the teams that they played, this quarter-final against Turkey should have been one of their easier games. But in this time, they fell foul to the golden goal rule. This time, Turkey won. Turkey a surprise of their own. They didn't really spring many surprises on teams better than them, if you think about it. They followed Brazil into knockout stage, beating China and Costa Rica. So if you think about sort of teams they were playing against who they were qualified ahead of, they'd probably, probably have them over China and Costa Rica. They beat Japan, which on Japanese soil could be considered a shock, really. Then they beat Senegal, lost to Brazil again and won over another co-host in the third, fourth place playoff against South Korea. They did have a fantastic team, Turkey there. Rustu, Alpai, Emre, Tugay, Umit Deval, Hassan Sass, Hakan Suka. So, I mean, I mean, it couldn't be, in terms of pound for pound against Japan, maybe it could be a shock, probably isn't really. Uh, moving on from 2002 tournament, Ryan, SAFC, 992 says Greece winning in 2004 and hands down I've got to agree as well in terms of bell-to-bell tournament football in terms of just a game hands down the easily easily the greatest tournament shock win ever Greece were bottom seeds easily amongst the four worst teams at the tournament in a tournament that contained Latvia Bulgaria Russia it's better than Denmark 92 because the shock for Denmark in 1992 isn't the the act of winning the tournament, it's the shock of qualifying through the back door after Yugoslavia's disqualification. It's also, yeah, fair enough, they beat the two best teams in Europe at the time in the Netherlands and Germany on the way to doing it, so that does help, yeah. But they did have a fantastic team. Meanwhile, Greece, it was more built on mentality, great mentality. Karagounis in the middle of the park, fantastic captain. Karasteas up front, fantastic. Played for Werder Bremen at the time and was scoring goals left, right and centre at this tournament. Greece would beat the the hosts in Portugal in the very, very first game managed to get a point out of Spain in the second. And even though they lost to Russia, it confirmed France, not England, in the uh, quarterfinals. They were through to a quarterfinal of a tournament for the first time. Angelos Karastea stunned France, a team looking back to uh, predictions in year six. I was at my final year in high school, primary school. Rather, uh, I had France to beat England in the tournament's final. Obviously, none of that came true. Both were out in the quarterfinals. Karastea stunning France to make the semi-finals, and in that semi-finals, Greece played Czech Republic. Trianos Delas heading in the only silver goal that's really ever mattered. I think it's only the second silver goal in UEFA competition ever. Um, versus one of the new favourites in Czech Republic because Czech Republic had a fantastic team. They were strolling through the tournament, it seemed. And of course, in the final, Greece in a final against Portugal. A neat bookend to the uh, tournament exactly played out as the uh, first game. Karasteas getting a header 
two wins over the host nation. Uh, surely the first time that's ever happened at a tournament. Turkey did beat two home nations at uh, the previous tournament, as we just discussed, but versus different hosts. So, I mean, I don't think that's ever come close to ever happening. I may be missing someone glaring. And uh, Jonathan Ah comes back with another 2002 World Cup suggestion again, which he says he despises. Uh, America versus Portugal, which also made him smile. George HS2706 also says South Korea versus Portugal. And I remember in the build-up to this tournament, Pauletta, he was here marked as one of the front-runners to win the Golden Boot. He did his best with a hat-trick in the second game against Poland. They, Portugal would win that game 4-0. Uh, but the crucial game for Portugal's tournament was a match-day one defeat. 3-2 to America. America had raced into a 3-0 first-half lead. Uh, it's still their best return at a World Cup. Uh, they got to the quarter-finals, losing to Germany. Um, potentially 2026, I think they'll get very far. Got a young squad. It's at a home tournament, of course. They've got all the ingredients to uh, go ahead and uh, maybe even win that tournament. I mean, who knows? And finally become this world footballing superpower. Uh, Portugal, on the other hand, they would crash out to South Korea. They'd lose 1-0 thanks to... Uh, Park Ji-sung, I think it was even pre-PSV days there. I think it, maybe he was just on the cusp of signing for PSV. Regardless, Portugal crashed out, lose 1-0 to South Korea. South Korea would go through alongside the United States. And of course, in and amongst this, we have to discuss the South Korea story. We did long form on uh, Anjun Wang on the 26th episode of the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast some weeks ago. South Korea would beat Poland, they'd go toe-to-toe with America, with Andrew and Juan again scoring there, uh, beat Portugal to stop the group. And regardless of whether you whether you agree with the refereeing decisions beating Italy and Spain, won by extra time golden goal from Perugia's Andrew and Juan, and then by penalties from Spain, there was, of course, numerous opponent goals disallowed, numerous bad decisions such as red cards for diving. Uh, but South Korea marched on and looking back, the easier of those three games, Italy, Spain, and then in semi-finals, Germany, the easier at that time would have been Germany. Germany pretty much one nil their way thanks to the likes of Michael Ballack, Oliver Kahn, Miroslav Klose. And on paper, the harder side of the draw was Germany's, but South Korea eliminated all opposition. And of course, the other half of the draw contained Senegal, Turkey and Sweden. Sweden in George HS2706's other pick, Sweden versus Argentina 2002. And at the time, I'm not sure if I agree with the match itself, the result itself, 1-1 draw, being a shock. I think the shock primarily lies in Argentina's elimination. Sweden were a fantastic team at the time. They were probably top 16 in the world at the time. Um, not just in the FIFA rankings, they're a lot of trash, but on the actual pitch. <laughs> but so were England and Argentina, so one had to miss out in the uh, in these days. Unfortunately, it was Argentina. Um, to put things into a, a bizarre perspective, but a perspective that I think is kind of relevant, uh, the 2006 World Cup video game, if you remember, um, the, the introduction to that, several teams were montaged to show they're winning the World Cup animation. So you've got your usual suspects here, Brazil's, Germany's, Argentina's, Italy's, etc., etc. And then all the way down the list, you even have England. <laughs> you even have England. Um, and then Sweden, they're there too. So that shows how well, how good Sweden were, even if it's like in a roundabout, strange way, but that shows how much in contention that Sweden were to do quite well at this World Cup because they were even shown in the winning animation introduction for the uh, for the video game package. Um, AFC Finners, if you haven't watched our collaboration, I did a, I did a biography of football on John Charles Fay's channel. He did a What If Arsenal Made the Champions League Knockouts 2002-2003, released them last Thursday. If you have not had the chance to check them out, please check them out. AFC Finners puts 
Zambia in 2012, Slovakia versus Italy in 2010 and Wales 2016 all spring to mind. And kicking things off, yeah, Zambia is a fantastic story. A team killed, plane crash in the 1993 qualification for the World Cup on the cusp of World Cup qualification in America. Had one of the best teams in African football, international football at the time. They never made a World Cup. They still haven't, but they have won the 2012 AFCON. An excruciating penalty shootout, which was often the case in AFCON finals around this time. And the touching part of this story is that they won it a mere mile away from where the 1993 team went down in the plane crash. The Chipola Polo rising from um, those ashes some near 20 years later on. And in terms of Italy in 2010, it began this this strange succession of World Cup winners going out of the groups. Obviously, we had um, France in 2002. They um, they went out, obviously, had a break in 2006 because Brazil did fairly well, fairly well, not by their standards, got in the quarterfinals. And then in 2010, we've got Italy. They'd underperformed against Paraguay. They'd drawn, fair enough. Paraguay were decent at this time. They drew in 2006 when they won the tournament against America. America probably, I'd probably have them on a totem pole below Paraguay of 2010 as well. Paraguay getting to the uh, to the quarterfinals in South Africa. New Zealand in the second match, though, that was a different matter. That was a different uh, disappointment, really. Halifax Town, former Halifax Town's own Shane Smeltz, uh, scoring the goal to lead New Zealand for a time. Obviously, Italy would peg that back, draw one all. And then they'd... Uh, They'd lose to Slovakia 3-2 in the final game, despite an absolute peach of a Fabio Quagliarelli goal. Um, that brilliant lob. Italy haven't played a World Cup knockout stage match since the final in 2006, which is crazy to think about. Um, in terms of Wales, it's like Greece 2004 for me. Fantastic team spirit. Great team mentality. They lost the battle in terms of the match against England, but ultimately, of course, won the war, won the bragging rights. England were out the last 16. They got beat in the uh, tougher half of the draw. Meanwhile, Wales beat Russia, beat Slovakia. Winning the group had them in the easier half of the draw. The half of the draw that had zero European championships in it compared to England's half of the draw, which had nine with the likes of Germany, Spain, Italy and France. Um, they beat Northern Ireland perhaps a bit fortuitously in Paris, they scored an own goal. Uh, they went behind against Belgium, thanks to an absolutely sumptuous Rajan Angolan goal. But then uh, National Williams header, a superb, a superb Frank Werfwinton-esque, um, Hal Robson can who uh, turn on a sixpence second and a Sam Vokes header. Um, that couldn't obviously be replicated against Portugal, Cristiano Ronaldo and Nani would score in the semi-final. Of course, Portugal, the team that Greece beat. So the Omens were there if Wales were to go on and beat them. And then obviously the France final, Portugal beat France, uh, which meant that Wales lost to the eventual winners, which has a bit more cachet about it. Uh, Joe says Brazil 7, Brazil 1, Germany 7 rather, just because it was funny. And he also mentions the uh, 2018 World Cup. On the 2018 World Cup, I think we occasionally have these tournaments. I think it's kind of cyclical. Um, In terms of going out early, I say going out early is pre-quarterfinals. So... We've got Portugal, Spain and Argentina all out early. Holland, Italy and America not even at the tournament. So from from a stand, from a right from the very first whistle at the World Cup, you've, you're going to have a better chance of some unfancied teams making the quarterfinals. So like your Denmarks, your, uh, your Russias and uh, Sweden, etc. And I think it's, it's on a path of like every other tournament, it seems. Even in 2014, where we did have Spain, Italy and England out of the groups, we also had fantastic teams who were in a great quarterfinal lineup. So I'm talking um, Brazil, Colombia, 
we had France, Germany. We had some big games. Obviously, Costa Rica are the one that springs to mind there that found its way through the cracks. In 2010, though, we've got England, Italy, France, Portugal out before the quarterfinals. A poor Brazil side in the quarterfinals as well. 2002, likewise, you got Argentina, Portugal, France out in the groups. Teams like Senegal, Turkey, South Korea making the quarterfinals there. I think maybe because of the truncated season and how hard this has been mentally and physically on the players this season, the Euros, I think, will have the same. But if the trend of World Cup um, continues, we'll have a bit of a shock in 2026 for the World Cup in America, Canada and Mexico. And of course, the last World Cup that uh, America hosted, 1994, we had the great shocks of Germany versus Bulgaria, Romania versus Argentina, Bulgaria, Romania and Sweden also in the quarterfinals. And of course, going back to Brazil, 7-1 defeat there. The Minerazzo. It's the most shocking World Cup scoreline, isn't it? And I just like to listen to the BBC commentary of it occasionally because it's the incredulity that Guy Mowbray gets with each passing goal and it's 5-0 before the half. It's just fantastic. It's probably the most shocking World Cup scoreline since West Germany's winning the 1954 World Cup final, the 3-2 against Hungary or Senegal versus France in 2002, of course, and America's 1-0 win over England in 1950. I've collected a couple more from the 2000s. I could have been here all day with uh, ones from all time. But in the 2000s, we've got Germany's elimination from 2004. And most notably of which, the point they got against Latvia of all teams. Latvia have never before or since got close to coming close to a tournament. Got a point out of Latvia and somehow still being within a win. Germany were of qualifying on the last match. They didn't deserve to be behind the Netherlands and Czech Republic. And at the time, they didn't. The following tournament, France had a similar time of it. They were drawing to the uh, group's whipping boys, Romania, um, just like Latvia drew to Germany. And um, like Germany, France finished behind the whipping boys, drawing to Romania, losing to the Netherlands, losing to Italy. And uh, Netherlands being one of the teams of the tournament, of course. Remaining with 2008, remaining with that team of the tournament, the Netherlands, we also have to discuss their quarterfinal with Russia. Russia... Beat Sweden in essentially what was a playoff in the group to get to the quarterfinals. The Netherlands were amongst the favourites with uh, with Spain and Germany playing the best football at the tournament amongst the favourites there. Germany, of course, they had lost that group stage match with Croatia. Spain were seemingly, Torres via, seemingly on their way to a first, first trophy since 1964. And they would, of course. Then in the quarterfinal, Andrei Hash having Roman Pavlyuchenko hit them an extra time. I was, I was, I remember sat, I remember exactly where I was sat in my mum's house, being completely dumbfounded. The Netherlands were supposed to win. They were always my, as a neutral favourite, if England got knocked out, of course, they weren't even there at this tournament. So they were my favourite right from the off. And I'm still, I'm still waiting for that great Netherlands team to win a tournament in my lifetime. Doesn't seem likely this time with uh, Frank de Boer at the helm in 2021. Maybe we'll get a good World Cup out of them, maybe. Um, In terms of single teams and a one single European campaign. Stick around after this short break where we're going to be discussing England at Euro 2000. To discuss England at Euro 2000, we have to look back at England's European Championship history and it gets all the way back to 1963. And in a first attempt to qualify for Euro 1964, they went out to France 6-3 in the preliminaries. 5-2 was the scoreline to France, the, uh, the vital game in the qualification there. 1968, England qualified. They qualified as world champions and their race was run in the semi-finals. The joint best 
record, of course, at this time. It was a four-team tournament right up until the uh, 1976 tournament. They would lose to Yugoslavia. Dragan Zajic with his 86th minute winner for Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia would go on to lose to Italy, of course, in the final. In 1970s, England had a pretty dismal record at tournaments. They would only qualify for one, and that was the 1970 World Cup, but that was as holders, so they didn't even have to qualify. So in 1972, they lost to West Germany in a playoff in a 3-1 defeat in West Germany. They were behind the eventual winners, Czechoslovakia, in the 1976 qualification group as well. And obviously, in 1974 and 78, they wouldn't qualify for either of those World Cups, as Scotland were flying the flag for Britain in the uh, World Cups. And as the 70s became the 80s, renewed optimism for England. They would qualify for the European Championships under the management of Ron Greenwood. Drew against Belgium, the eventual finalists, in a, in a sort of fit, weird half phase between the four-team tournament and when it was an eight-team tournament. When you'd play the group stages, the winner would go through to the final. Of winner of the group would go through to the final. Second place would uh, go to the third, fourth place playoff. And a draw against Belgium, a win against Spain, but a loss against Italy was the difference between third place and a final. 1984, we had uh, we'd overcome. We'd almost got to the semi-finals of the World Cup under Ron Greenwood in uh, Spain in 1982, but couldn't beat either West Germany or Spain in a dodgy three-team group. 1984, Bobby Robson was in charge. He'd just been the manager of Ipswich, taking them to uh, new heights in Europe and England. But... He failed to qualify for his very first tournament, offered his re- resignation for Brian Clough after failure to qualify for Euro 84, losing to Denmark. They'd be back in 86, of course, via Diego Maradona and the World Cup quarterfinal, and Robson would qualify England for Euro 88, but they would lose to the Soviet Union, the Dutch and Ireland, not able to push on from 86, and again, facing fresh doubts over his future. Robson would, of course, take England to a World Cup quarter, a semi-final in 1990, of course, losing to the Germans on penalties, as was often the case in the 90s. But Robson would be succeeded by Graham Taylor. They'd qualified for Euro 92. They had the easier of the two groups, Denmark, France and hosts Sweden. They drew nil-nil with Denmark and Sweden, with Denmark and France, rather. Go ahead through David Platt against Sweden in Stockholm and it seemed as though with Gary Lineker stuck on his uh, goal record behind Bobby Charlton it looked as though he would be uh, scoring to save the day for England taking them into a second European Championship semi-final instead it would be the the game of Thomas Brolin and Matt Darlene and Sweden would win 2-1 and um, without tournament football in 1994 Graham Taylor resigned 1996 football was sure to come home Terry Venables was in charge Taken Barcelona to a European Cup final, obviously in defeat in 86, and of course led Tottenham to the FA Cup in 1991. Going into the tournament, obviously England didn't need to qualify. They had the Hong Kong dentist chair, now infamous. Um, The England team were vilified, as was often the case at the time, just as Bobby Robson was in the media and Graham Taylor was to a despicable amount before it wasn't helped with the first game at Wembley, the very first game of the tournament. England drew 1-1 with Switzerland. Alan Shearer ended his goal drought, but Sweden nicked a point and England had it all to do. They had Scotland, the old enemy, next. The nation and the press, though, by the end of the game, they would be back on side. Paul Gascoigne scored a goal and Alan Shearer as well. They had the dentist chair celebration. The perfect arc was completed or looked to be reaching completion. And then in one of the greatest performances by England at Wembley, either one really old or new, 
Um, besides the uh, 1966 World Cup final, of course, England thrashed the Netherlands 4-1, even conceding late to stop Scotland, Scotland qualifying on, uh, on goal scored there, which uh, says anything you need to know about the England-Scotland rivalry. You had Teddy Sheringham, Alan Shearer combining for fantastic goals there. England drew the quarter-final against Spain 0-0, but nonetheless, it was a penalty win. Penalty win before the all-encompassing win in the uh, World Cup last 16 against Colombia in 2018. England were hanging on in the game, and it's not as glorious as you remember when you think Euro 96 England semi-final. And that semi-final was, of course, against Germany 1-1. Alan Shearer headed in. Stefan Kuntz equalised with Alan Shearer's golden boot wrapped up. There was the small matter of penalties and Czech Republic in the final awaiting them. Surely win this and England would win the tournament. But then Gareth Southgate misses. Andreas Moller scores. Germany win. They win the final. England out on penalties to Germany again. So via another penalty shootout defeat in France, 98 in Saint-Étienne against Argentina. Glenn Hoddle was the manager, of course. With Hoddle, England got four points from the first three qualification games for Euro 2000. They lost to Sweden drew to Bulgaria 0-0 and beat Luxembourg rather unconvincingly 3-0. And after various comments made, which were made public, which we'll not get into, Glenn Hoddle was gone. Kevin Keegan was in the populist. Skull scored a hat-trick against Poland. Draws in June against Sweden and Bulgaria meant that qualification was going to the wire. A 6-0 win over Luxembourg was a given, um, but then a draw in Warsaw in September 99, 0-0 meant England were hanging on by a thread for a whole month because it was a five-team group, so they had to wait for the final game, games of the group to uh, play out. A Poland point in Stockholm meant that England wouldn't be at Euro 2000. Thankfully for England, thankfully for Keegan and others, including Alan Shearer, who would bow out at the tournament, Sweden won 2-0 and they were into the playoffs after three wins in qualification, which is just embarrassing containing that group. Anyway, the playoff... Who could you draw in the playoffs? Well, you could draw Ireland, could draw other teams, but they got the worst possible outcome, Scotland. <laughs> and uh, they went into the playoffs with the second worst record in qualification in terms of second place teams. Skulls, as he did do in uh, the main qualification, saved England again, scoring twice. 2-0 at Hamden, and by the end of the return leg at Wembley, England were hanging on. They lost 1-0 to Scotland in the second leg, but it was enough. Optimism wasn't high in terms of, I'm sure, the national psyche. Optimism was high for me because it was a, a national tournament. I was seven. I didn't know any better. Um, England, I remember having a Euro 2000 shirt, which just had all the 16 flags of the teams. It was a fantastic time. I remember the build-up more than the actual tournament, which goes to show how well England did, which we'll get onto in a, uh, in a second. Optimism wasn't high. In the group, we were drawn with Portugal, Germany and Romania, which... On the face of it, sounds like three great teams and one good team. But let's not forget, Romania beat England in the 1998 World Cup. Had a fantastic team. Georgi Hadji was uh, making his final bow for the national team for Romania. In the final squad names, such as Rio Ferdinand, Kieran Dyer cruelly missed out. You've got the likes of uh, David Seaman, the Neville brothers, Sol Campbell, Tony Adams, Martin Keown, Gareth Southgate and Gareth Barry. A solid enough defence in the 22-man uh, squad, as it were. And out wide, you had enough quality in David Beckham, Stephen Manaman, Nick Barnby as well. Obviously, that infers a, an age-old left-wing problem, which England would have in the subsequent three tournaments until Joe Cole featured for a time in the 2006 tournament, 2006 World Cup. Meanwhile, Stephen Manaman featured in this tournament. Of course, Darren Anderton was ruled out through injury. Through the middle, you had uh, Stephen Jarrod, who's fairly young. He wouldn't get onto the pitch. You got uh, 
Paul Scholes, Dennis, Dennis Wise and Paul Ince, who were the preferred midfield centrally anyway. Kevin Phillips got into the squad after his huge 30-goal Premier League return, but the main strikers, of course, who were the same in the, the 98 World Cup, Michael Owen, of course, and Alan Shearer. Perhaps the tournament came too soon for Emil Heskey. The partnership with uh, with Michael Owen for Liverpool would blossom the following year, and of course, 2002, they would partner each other in the uh, World Cup in the Far East. So let's go on to Euro 2000. Portugal, June the 12th, Eindhoven. England started off a tournament like I don't think I've ever seen them start one off. And I think I'm trying to struggle. It's probably 1982 is the last time they had such a start in a in a tournament with that goal inside of a minute against France. England racing to a 2-0 lead. Steve McManaman, Paul Scholes header. Portugal, one of the one of the I'd call them dark horses really. They didn't qualify for the 98 World Cup that obviously we know now they would go out in the in the 2002 World Cup at the groups. But then you've got Luis Figo's insane goal. People call it the most overrated goal of all time because it's uh, it takes a deflection, but it's still a fantastic effort. I don't care whether it's got a, refl- a deflection; it just looks good from the from the main TV angle. Portugal would turn it round before the break. Nuno Gomes, Portugal's most prolific goal scorer at the championships, would score a winner on the hour mark, and this obviously proved crucial as uh, would rear itself on match day three. But in between that the biggest game of the lot from an England perspective anyway June the 17th Charleroi in Belgium the high point from an English perspective at the tournament Alan Shearer scoring a header against what is let's be honest a poor Germany side and in between 1998 and 2004 Germany weren't great obviously they made that World Cup quarter, World Cup final in 2002 saved by the likes of as I said Oliver Kahn Miroslav Klose and Michael Ballack but in and amongst that we had the shocking defeat in the quarter final in 98 to Croatia we've got the group stage elimination here and we've got the group stage elimination in Euro 2004 and that of course caused an entire root and branch redevelopment of German football as a whole and of course has led to such success in the 2010s and what they hope in the 2020s. So England went into the final game with three points. Romania, June the 20th, back in Charleroi. Romania were the fawn in the side of England at the previous tournament, beating beating England 2-1 at that particular tournament, Romania going on to win the group whilst England finished second and would face Argentina. England would ultimately lose 89th minute. They were winning 2-1 with a quick turnaround at the half through Alan Shearer and Michael Owen, the partnership up front. But Phil Neville took the brunt of it because um, he did a foul in the 89th minute. Romania, of course, convert the penalty. Romania go through with four points from three games. Portugal, after beating Germany, Sergio Conceição hat-trick there. They go top. Germany finish bottom of the pile in England. But for that last minute, conceded goal against Romania. Would have been through, but of course, fine margins. And that is what this uh, qualification, and this indeed, this uh, tournament for England boiled down to. Second place in the group would have meant Italy. And Italy, far too strong with the likes of Francesco Totti, who was having an absolutely fantastic tournament in Euro 2000, would get man of the match in the final, for example, and had a great quarter-final against, against Romania. So top spot, if England managed to hold on against Portugal and beat Romania, it would have been top spot. But top spot meant Turkey. And then, obviously, the the uh, aside from Yugoslavia, and the Dutch got Yugoslavia in that quarter-final, that would be the favourable draw for, for England, that would be Turkey. 
But then in the semi-finals, it was France. So Turkey wouldn't be beyond England and getting to the semi-finals wouldn't be beyond England, despite the uh, despite the run to get to the final. I think England, the semi-final, that's probably about as far as you can take it. Italy, of course, they wouldn't have beaten Italy in that quarter-final. They would not have beaten France either because obviously France get to the final, beat Italy, no matter how fortuitously, because I think Italy had the better game than France on that day. And um, top spot, as I said, would probably be out of reach anyway because of Conceição's hat-trick against Germany on match day three. And also moving on from that, obviously we're into what-if territory here, so check out the YouTube page, what-if football, so subscribe, please. Um, <laughs> how would two successive European championships then have led into Sven-Goran Eriksson? Does then Kevin Keegan stay? Would Sven-Goran Eriksson come at the right time? Would he be... Would he be England manager ever? Because Kevin Keegan coming off the back of a European Championships in the semi-final, he wouldn't then leave after losing to Germany in World Cup qualification. Would England even qualify for the World Cup in 2002? Because if they lose to Germany and they're under that false pretense of the semi-final of the European Championships, they might not necessarily get that point against Greece at Old Trafford. They might not have um, they might not have won a playoff against Ukraine for the World Cup to qualify for the World Cup. This would, of course usher in Sven-Goran Eriksson and England would fail at the quarter-final stage between 2002, 2004, 2006. Obviously two penalty defeats to Portugal and the Ronaldinho free kick in the Far East against Brazil, which is England. I'll hold my head up, hands up and say that is England's best chance at winning a tournament up until this summer. So bring on the optimism. And uh, I asked for some of your memories of England in the European Championships. Harry Holland goes with two of my seminal memories as well. England versus France and England versus Portugal from 2004. And at the forefront of my mind, yeah, crying in a pub um, after France beat us 2004, that wizardry from Zinedine Zidane in the last minute for a free kick and then the penalty was just... From an English perspective, hard to watch, but, you know, looking back, what a majestic couple of minutes from the man there. And obviously England versus Portugal, that was the big time where I thought England could win something there. And if they beat Portugal, I think they win it. Um... Penalties, of course, again, it, what it boils down to maybe with if Michael Owen, if uh, Wayne Rooney wasn't injured, rather. And, of course, even though it wasn't the tournament, England versus Croatia 2007. Just absolute apathy. And, uh, yeah, and then even then there was optimism going into that match because I was thinking, surely Croatia will just let us win. Obviously, that isn't sport. And um, in, two, in terms of 2000, my memories from 2000, I remember the build-up more. And I remember more supporting the Netherlands because the Netherlands had home field advantage, the bright orange kits behind behind the uh, pitch there. And you could just see all of them. I remember supporting Holland more because I remember more the latter stages. Obviously, they'd be beaten by Italy in the semi-finals, And their single performance in that penalty shootout against Italy in the semi-finals is one of the worst I've ever seen in my life. Um, Italy would, of course, go on to lose to France in the Golden Goal David Trezeguet final, the second European Championships final to be settled by Golden Goal. So after this short break, we'll be going to England and the 2006-07 Premier League season for the table never lies. Welcome back. So this is how the Premier League table looked 14 years ago today. Now, of course, the past few weeks we've looked at Italy and Spain in terms of how the table looks. And the, the seasons were still ongoing because in odd-numbered years, the, the seasons would run until June. Now, English seasons notoriously wrap up fairly early and even in odd-numbered years, it wrapped up early here. 
So this is the final table of the 2006-07 season. So we had Manchester United on 89 points, winning the league, the first league in four years. Chelsea on 83. Liverpool and Arsenal rounded off the Champions League spots on 68 points apiece. Meanwhile, Tottenham, they were on 60 points. Everton were on 58 points. And Bolton were on 56 points, all qualifying for the UEFA Cup. In mid-table hell, we had Reading, Portsmouth, Blackburn on 50s. Aston Villa and, B- and Middlesbrough on 46. Newcastle on 43. Man City on 41. And in the relegation dogfight, West Ham on 41. Fulham 39. Wigan 38. Sheffield United on 38. Charlton on 34. And Watford on 28. Marooned at the bottom of that table for quite some time. So it's only one place we can start. And it's the hollow, hollow, hollow third season for Jose Mourinho it is the Mourinho third season it's not the Mourinho third season as we know it now if he even does get to a third season which he hasn't done at Manchester uh, at Tottenham Hotspur sorry but he did do at Manchester United only halfway through it and at his previous club Chelsea which he didn't make it all the way through there either so this wasn't as hollow as you see on the face of it FA Cup they won that the first FA Cup to be at the new Wembley, an absolute torrid match, a 1-0 win over Manchester United in extra time, Didier Drogba. They won the League Cup amid absolute fighting, just a mass brawl at the end of that game. Uh, John Terry got his head nearly clean, kicked off his shoulders by Abu Dhabi, but ultimately it was the day of Didier Drogba and Mourinho winning both cups against his old adversaries. The Liverpool semi-final curse in the Champions League, they would continue Liverpool beating Chelsea on penalties as they would go to the final of the Champions League for the second time in three years against AC Milan again but this time losing that to the great Pippo Inzaghi Mourinho and Chelsea would only lose three times away at Middlesbrough again for the second successive season and away at Tottenham and at Liverpool so in the grand scheme of things we talk about Pep Guardiola's quadruple all the time this was almost a quadruple off Mourinho and Chelsea here Chelsea drew too many games needless draws as well at home to Reading promotion to prize package at home to Fulham in what can be called a West London derby I suppose and pivotally at home to Bolton which was the same day as Everton 2 Manchester United 4 which for me that changes the entire outlook on the title race because at half time Chelsea winning Man United are losing Everton go 2-0 up and then the comeback is kickstarted by a Phil Neville own goal Wayne Rooney scores kisses the Man United badge in front of Gladys Street and you've got even Chris Eagles wrapping things up. So Man United win 4-2, Chelsea drop points. Chelsea end with five draws in a row. Arsenal won, Chelsea won. Clinches the title for Manchester United. And Didier Drogba was the main man at Chelsea. But regardless, Chelsea needed another marquee striker signing and Andrei Shevchenko, a signing that didn't come off well. And striker signings haven't been great since Drogba really at Chelsea. You've had Murata, Lukaku, Torres... Some might add Timo Werner into that. I'm not going to um, because I think he's great. Nicholas and Elkert was a good striker sign as well, I must admit. The transfer window, I think it was on the whole in terms of Chelsea. It was a fantastic window. Michael Ballack, Solomon Kalou, John Obi mikel Ashley Cole. They'd all be very, very successful with the double winning team under Carlo Ancelotti in 2009-10 as well. And at least three of those four probably could be named club legends. And in terms of Manchester United's resurgence, I think it was a maturation of... Wayne Rooney, Cristiano Ronaldo, them coming to their peaks, converging on that goal against Bolton, for example, the counter-attacking goal that they'd make their own, we'd see much later on against Arsenal in the Champions League semi-final in new heights. Man United would find a successor 
of Peter Schmeichel after f- after six, five, six long years. Uh, Edwin van Saar taking that. Also key additions in defence were Nemanja Vidic and Patrice Ever from the previous previous January window in 2006 and they'd finally become settled. Patrice Ever had dislodged Gabriel Heinzer at left-back. Michael Carrick was in this season and instantly win a league title. And um, Manchester United were close like Chelsea to a treble, but the treble... Um, they got close, very, very close to the Champions League, but the maturing in the domestic side of things wasn't continentally seen just yet because they'd, uh, they'd come up in that fantastic Champions League quarterfinal, 7-1 against Roma. But then in the semi-finals, you've got Kaká, Gattuso, Perlo, etc. at AC Milan. More experienced and Milan, of course, would win. Kaká put on a path, fantastic show in the first leg. Milan would lose 3-2 but obviously those two away goals even the away goals didn't matter because Milan took Man United to to, uh, San Siro won 3-0 and would of course win the title there and as we uh, as we know Manchester United will win the league title in 2008 coupled with the Champions League so the maturing on the continental stage was only 12 months away and that was followed by the league the league cup and a Champions League final in 2009 on the other side of the coin, on the other end of the table, we had the demise of Charlton Athletic. Alan Kirbishley's long stay was over uh, the previous summer, and as a result, Charlton dropped like a stone. We had Ian Dowian, we had Les Reading, and Alan Pardew all succeeded him in the same season. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank was signed, but ultimately he wouldn't have the same effect as he would do on Middlesbrough the previous season, where he got them into the UEFA Cup final and sustained top half finishes. Or he wouldn't have the same effect at the Valley as Paolo Di Canio did a couple of years prior. Charlton made signings such as Jimmy Traore, Andy Fay, Andy Reid and Suleimani Diawara, but they, none of them were up to it and they went down after a 2-0 loss on Monday Night Football against Tottenham on the penultimate game with Jermaine Defoe, Dimitar Berbatov. Scoring goals to sink them and of course we have to discuss the Carlos Tevez saga. We've done it more long form on a previous episode of the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast. Check out episode 36 for that one where we cover the Sheffield United-West Ham rivalry and of course the Carlos Tevez saga and... To check this out, we have to go all the way back with Alan Pardew flanking Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascherano. Stood there like a prize draw winner. Mascherano left for Liverpool as quickly as possible. Pardew was sacked. In came Alan Kirbishley. Pardew was away to Charlton, so a bit of a uh, club swap there. Kirbishley steered them to safety, winning his first game 1-0 against Manchester United, but ultimately didn't win again until March the 17th. They were bottom 10 points off safety, and for me this is one of the greatest, if not the greatest escape for the amount of distance they had to cover. But of course it was down to Carlos Tevez. Tevez would score against Blackburn in a 2-1 win, score against Middlesbrough in a 2-0 win, and Bobby Zamora scored against Arsenal in a 1-0 win in Arsenal's first ever loss at the Emirates, domestically anyway. And by the 14th, of April's Sheffield United West Ham clash West Ham had uh, got to within three points of safety Charlton on 32 Sheffield United on 31 and West Ham on 29 of course Sheffield United won 3-0 one of those goal scorers there being Phil Jagielka who uh, who left Sheffield United again um, this weekend just gone Sheffield United would win but only cobble together four points in their final five games all of those coming from relegation rivals. Charlton, a one-all draw, and Watford, a one-nil win. Charlton already down, Watford down for a long, long time. West Ham, on the other hand, won three more, beating Everton, one-nil. Wigan, three-nil, which was very, very pivotal because of the goal difference, and it drags Wigan into the battle as well, which is crucial for the final day, and they also beat Bolton, three-one. 
Tevez scored two in that in that match against Bolton, plus the winner against Manchester United. Whilst um, whilst West Ham were winning to seal safety against a Man United team who wrapped up the league the weekend before, Wigan scored against Sheffield United two one in the all or nothing clash. Whoever won survived, and if you lost, it was up to the fate of Manchester United whether you'd survive or not. David Unsworth scoring the penalty for Wigan, relegating his old club. Charlton were down to League One in two thousand and nine. They've also been down to League One in 2016. It's where they reside today. Also two promotions, of course, under their belt, 2012 and 2019. West Ham, they were down in 2011, an immediate return, and have been 16th to 6th ever since and uh, obviously secured Europa League football. Um, and I think 6th place now means group stage football. So it's, I think it's the very first UEFA Cup football proper since the uh, very, very late 90s, early 2000s. Sheffield United, they would go down to League One where they would remain for six years until they got re-promoted to the Championship in 2017, returning to the Premier League in 2019. Shocked us all with a ninth place finish last season, but of course now dead last going back to the Championship. Watford, they survived the Premier League the third time lucky in 2015-16, went back down last season and they're back up this season and We'll be looking for fourth time lucky and in in terms of staying in the Premier League, of course, have an FA Cup final under their belt from 2019 where they were humiliated by Manchester City. And finally, let's wrap it up with the European places. We had a UEFA Cup race. Spurs were in it once more, not the races, not the pace of the fourth place finish that they were hoping to emulate from 2005-06. Of course, they had that the dodgy lasagna stroke, uh, norovirus. Everton performed... Uh, Likewise, or hopefully likewise, 2004-05, but some way off that pace, they of course wouldn't gain Champions League qualification. But both were settling with the UEFA Cup consolation. Reading, this season's surprise packages, first top flight season ever, stewardship of Steve Coppell, Steve Coppell, Steve Coppell, and they had uh, Marcus Hanneman in net, Nicky Shari, Inga Marsen, Ibrahim Sonko in defence, Sidwell Gunnarsson up in midfield, Levar Lita, Kevin Doyle, Stephen Hunt, Solky Hyung. They had a very, very good team and performed very well against the top teams, getting points at Manchester United, Chelsea, Everton, beating the likes of Tottenham Villa, Newcastle, even thrashing West Ham 6-0. Reading would go down the subsequent summer, of course, second season syndrome at its height. But with a game to go, Everton had 57 points. They had a superior goal difference and looked to be set in fifth place. They would lose that to Tottenham. Tottenham in 57th, Bolton in fifth, with 55. And those chasing them were Reading on 54 and Portsmouth on 53. So Portsmouth got a nil-nil draw, which knocked them out of uh, European contention, of course. Bolton got a 2-2 draw thanks to a, a late, late Luke Moore equaliser on 81 minutes which meant that if Reading could beat Blackburn away they'd be playing European football a winner against them they were 3-3 at, at the death a winner would have taken them into the UEFA Cup but it didn't and I think at this stage Intertoto Cup football was settled on invitation and if you regardless of if you accepted that invitation I don't think Reading accepted that invitation because the Intertoto Cup segment was Blackburns, Blackburn, who of course they finished ninth. So Reading, if they'd have just accepted that invitation, they could have been playing, could have been playing into Toto Cup football, and ultimately UEFA Cup football as Blackburn beat FK Vetra of Lithuania, of course, 
and uh, they qualified for the UEFA Cup, but were out in the quirky pre-group stage, first round proper. Yeah, remember those days in the first round, which left three English teams going into the group stages. They would all go through. They would all go through to the last 32. They would all go through to the last 16. Then Tottenham, they went out to PSV on penalties. Everton went out to semi-finalists, Fiorentina, on penalties, both in the last 16. Bolton, they went out, yeah, you guessed it, in the last 16. In normal time, though, to spot in Lisbon, who, to be fair, they had beaten Atletico Madrid, and it's their most um, successful season in Europe. And, of course, they have been right to the pit of League 2, right to the pit of the Football League. They have, of course, been promoted this summer and look to be rebounding under former Barrow manager, former Blackpool player Ian Evett. Before we leave you today, we've got a 2000s trivial teaser and a couple, just a couple of correct answers there. Welcome back. This is a 2000s trivial teaser and well done to questionable football quizzes. Again, Hail underscore CFC on Twitter. You were both correct with Anderson, who was a midfielder, a midfielder who's played underneath Sir Alex Ferguson, Vincenzo Mantella. Obviously, Montella with Fiorentina there. Anderson's quirky little loan spell after uh, Manchester United. Anderson, of course, played un- played alongside Juan Cuadrado, Jose Basingua, Raul Morales, Jared Piquet and Ronaldinho. Unfortunately, George S- HS2706, it wasn't Giuseppe Rossi, but it's a fantastic guess. Our 2000 trivial teaser answer this week is a midfielder again. He's been managed by Jose Mourinho. He's been managed by Nico Kovac. He's played alongside Ray Parler, Thiago, Thibaut Courtois, David Bentley and Wissam Ben Yedder. Again, a midfielder played alongside Ray Parler, Thiago, Thibaut Courtois, David Bentley and Wissam Ben Yedder played underneath Jose Mourinho and Nico Kovac. If you think you know the answer, tweet me at whatif underscore football or at whatif underscore YouTube. Um, and if you've been following us on whatif underscore YouTube on Twitter, you've been seeing a countdown from number 23 all the way down to what will be Monday and that must mean something and it is an announcement a big announcement on Monday over the channel's future which if you want to learn about that follow us on what if underscore YouTube alternatively we'll provide in a easy to digest YouTube video all about it just a minute long and we'll be dropping that on Monday which factors into the announcement about the channel's future on YouTube next week, we're going to be taking a look at the 1999 UEFA Cup final. We'll be taking a look at Italia 90, Terry Venables, Michel Platini, Dennis Bergkamp, England, the best World Cup finals, Diego Maradona and a lovely little review of Actua Soccer. Next week on, to, on the Noise Nostalgia's 44th episode, we'll be taking a look at Portugal versus Greece in 2004, Germany between 2000 and 2006 and we'll be remaining in Germany for the 2007-8 season and unfortunately this is the last episode of Naughty's Nostalgia before the summer break because of course it is the European Championships we'll be covering the European Championships every day in podcast form so you can be you can hear my voice every day instead of every week there <laughs> and, uh, check us out on Acast, Spotify and Apple keep your eyes peeled on YouTube and Twitter for that big big announcement ahead of the Euros and until next time see you then.
Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.